Hello, welcome back to the Feathers Pub in Westminster and another edition of On the House, the Pints After Politics podcast. And we might need a stiffer drink than usual after this week's event. As things stand, Boris Johnson has agreed a deal with the EU and will be putting it before Parliament in a historic vote this Saturday. It's still not clear whether that vote will carry a majority and that Johnson will be able to get his deal through. The DUP, however, have come out to say they will not support Boris Johnson's deal. I am Sam Jima, MP for East Surrey, and as usual, I am joined by my Liberal Democrat colleague, Dr Philip Lee, currently MP for Bracknell and candidate for Wokingham in the next election, whenever that happens. Philip, is that election going to be sooner now, now that Boris has got a deal? Look, I mean, I think trying to make a prediction on what happens on Saturday is always difficult, but currently the numbers look like the government can't get its deal through, um, and in which case we move, go into next week, the government will have had to have sent by law a request for an extension uh, after the Ben Act. I think at that point, I think it, 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 the pressure then moves to the Labour Party, to be honest with you, because they have to decide how they're going to handle events going forward. Are they going to seek a general election? Uh, are they going to seek a referendum first? Um, those decisions, I think, will then move to the Jeremy Corbyn and his team, and um, we'll have to wait and see. But looking ahead, I'm, I'm optimistic that we can start making progress to what you and I have been trying to campaign for now for too long, I think, Sam, uh, which is uh, going back to the people with a referendum. Joining us is someone who's no stranger to intense times in Parliament. He was Tony Blair's feared spokesman, campaign manager and all-round enforcer in the first two terms of the last Labour government. He knows what it's like to play hardball with members of Parliament who don't intend to vote the way you want. Since leaving party politics, he's worked with mental health charities and dedicated himself to the cause of final say referendum on Brexit, both as an advisor to the People's Vote campaign and as the new Europeans editor-at-large. And he's in good company. After announcing he voted for the Liberal Democrats in this year's EU elections, he was expelled from the Labour Party. It's the original Malcolm Tucker himself, Alistair Campbell. Hello, Alistair. Welcome to On the House. How are you? I'm OK. I'm good. You voted Liberal Democrat. Have you joined our, joined our party yet? Uh, no, I haven't. I haven't. Should I? Well, I think you should. I mean, you know, centrism. I'm enjoying it myself. I think you would. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I don't feel I'm a Lib Dem. So what are you then? Uh, I'd say I'm sort of homeless Labour at the moment. I, I feel that the Labour Party is still my political home, uh, but the current Labour Party uh, would rather I didn't live in it. Um, <laughs> but I think that the things that I've always believed, I still believe a Labour Party, not necessarily this Labour Party. <clears throat> and I think you've seen with the, um, the Change UK experiment how hard it is to do something genuinely new. You know, you could have gone to that, you, you chose to go to the Liberal Democrats. I, I just feel, I also feel a lot of the policy stuff, I'm not quite sure on where the Lib Dems are. Well, I actually think some of that is is to be decided. I think the Liberal Democrats have their membership has, you know, significantly increased since 2015. A lot of those people, I'm told, are younger age, business types, etc. And so I think, you know, the policy position of the Liberal Democrats will evolve as its membership has evolved. Yeah, for sure, for sure. But I, I also, I don't know. I just feel it's not my. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm, I don't know what you, I don't really have a sense of a kind of coherent foreign policy. 
Um, I, I'm not, to be honest, I wasn't very happy with what you did about the revoke Article 50 position at the party, your party conference. I thought that was not a good move. Um, and also, I've just noticed in the last... It was interesting, was it this week where... You, you, your leader seems to be more interested in whacking the SNP and Labour, which I, I sort of get on the kind of party political front. But if the if the goal, if the driving goal is about stopping Brexit, I'm not sure that's very sensible right now. And as you know, Scottish politics is a, a different, is a different has a different makeup to yeah, for sure. Westminster politics. But you know, uh, but you're a national party. But, but I think you're right. I mean, I I mean, the national parties believes that people's vote is the way forward. I think in defence of the revoke policy, yeah, there could be an argument about how it landed, but fundamentally the Lib Dems actually all along have been pro-membership of the European Union. For sure. And I think if you're going to try to put that in a... I mean, I'm asking you, you're the general election expert here, you've won... How many have you won? A couple um, in being involved. Three with Tony. Three with Tony. Um, When you're trying to have a clear message to the electorate about what you stand for... If you are Remain, in effect, that's what the party's position has been consistently throughout, I think it's quite a good way of clarifying that, an effective way. But I would agree with you that I think, you know, and I think you've seen this more since, I think we need to talk more about the people's vote because I think still that that's a a distinct possibility in this whole Brexit process. I, I had three worries about it, to be honest. The first was that the... I think anything that you've got to you've got to be sort of you've got to stay in the real world. <clears throat> I know we're in a very kind of anything goes politics, but I think to build your whole conference and Joe's whole speech around the idea of I'm going to be the next prime minister, we're going to form the next government. I don't think that was realistic. And then the second thing, I think that the the it does actually. I, mean, look, I hate referendums, but I think if you if you've delivered the leave vote through a referendum I think if you're going to challenge it it's got to be uh, through a democratic exercise it's got to be another referendum and the third thing I think it did was it's, it basically it legitimised the line that Johnson is taking that somehow Brexit can be resolved properly through a general election that's the other thing I didn't like about it it was basically saying you know we can do this through a general election and I don't think we can do this through a general election I think the general election is the wrong way to resolve Brexit I think it's got to be a referendum but you would agree that it's still not bolted down that we're going to have a referendum to sort this out? No, of course I would, yeah. I mean, I think we're in a very, I think we're in a very fluid um, place. It does kind of... I sometimes feel it is, you know, I'm a sports nut, and it, is, it has felt at times like a, a sporting event where, you, you know, you literally are up some days, down the next. You make a move and it seems to go well. You make another move, it doesn't. Um, there are some star players who just don't perform. There are other players who don't seem like stars, but they become stars. It's like, it's and, and that sense of it being very, very fluid. But if you go back to, I mean, here we're coming up to the the People's Vote March. Uh, when we did the first People's Vote March, I mean, you could get the number of MPs we could get to the place in the back of a cab. And now the bloody you know you can't elbows falling out of the place. Let me know. speak. Let he's me speak. Let me speak. <laughs> Why have I only got two minutes? Why can't I have five minutes like he's got and all that stuff? So and we're not like that, though, no, are we? No, 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 no. no, no. no. And but it looks like we should be like that. It sounds like. Oh my say. god! Honestly, one or two. There's some of them you wouldn't believe. It's amazing what happens to people where they get the letters M and P after their name. 
time. They suddenly, some of them, Sam, Philip, some of them suddenly imagine that the world just wants to hear what they say and at real length. It's kind of what I've always thought myself. <laughs> you know, now, just before 45 we... Forty-five-minute speech is a short speech, you know. Now, before we get sort of into Brexit, which I'm sure we're going to because of the nature of this week, Louise Elman, Alistair, I mean, how do you see that? I mean, from afar, it's a, it was 55 years, I think, she's been a member of the Labour Party, and she's clearly wrestled with this over many, many, time, uh, many, many months, many years. Um, how do you see this? Because it's not a good look, is it? I mean, it's... Well, I was in Dublin yesterday speaking at Trinity College and I made a speech about um, populism and the parallels that we've got in the world at the moment with the 1930s and how I think we should be genuinely worried about what's happening in, in the world and including in our own country in terms of the, the politics as they are. And I talked about one of the, one of the things that I, that I see as a parallel in the 1930s and I'm not saying it's as bad, it's clearly not, but we did sort of think that the Second World War had put paid to anti-Semitism. And it's back. And it's back on left and right. But the fact that it's on the left is, I think, really, really upsetting. And I think people like... Fair enough, you know, you, you talked about me, you know, me not being in the Labour Party. My partner, Fiona, she left the Labour Party before I was kicked out. And it was partly about Brexit, but it was also actually... She, you know, she grew up in North London, a lot of Jewish friends, and she just couldn't stand the what the anti-Semitism, the sense of anti-Semitism was doing to them. And, I mean, I know Louise Elman very, very well. And, you know, you see some of the abuse that she's been getting since the decision about, you know, well, she's never attacked Israel. And, oh, you know, whatever the Israelis do, she should defend them and all this sort of stuff. Well, one, she's entitled to if that's what she believes. But secondly... You say it's not, not a good look. It's just it's not that it's just not a good look. It's just such a bad thing to do. And also, I see, when you look at the, the the MPs that seem to be under the greatest pressure in terms of deselection and so forth, I mean, I'm afraid most of them seem to be women, and some of them are Jewish. And you know, one of your new colleagues, Luciana, she just she's another one couldn't put up with it. But where has this come from? Is this something that was? latent in the party that has been given license now is it new uh, it's, it I've got to be honest I was I mean look we were always aware of a of a, a hard left element in the party for whom the Palestinian cause was as important as yeah, anything else. Stop the war coalition. Yeah, and listen, I don't, I don't mind I think that you know fighting for the Palestinian cause I'm totally up for that. However, I think that there there is this sense that it has equated itself with anything to do with Israel and the state of Israel. And then it's because Jeremy Corbyn is, is, uh, is seen as being, of, if you like, that side of that wing of the party, for anybody who even expresses a view, you know, 2% counter to that, somehow they suddenly become kind of, you know, Zionist filth and they have to be abused left, right and centre. And... I just, so I just think it, it, it. I don't know where you know. I honestly thought we'd never see it again. Um, I think the Labour leadership has a point when they say that it. You know, there are some who have quotes weaponised it, but they've allowed it to be weaponised because it exists. They've also got a point when they say that there is Islamophobia in your old party, which doesn't get covered or tackled in the same way. That is true. But I interviewed John McDonnell for GQ last week, 
And when he made that point, I said, hold on a minute, you know, we, the Labour Party, should not be judging ourselves according to their standards. Anti-Semitism, wherever it is, but particularly, I think, in a party like the Labour Party, it's just got to be rooted out and seem to be rooted out. I, I think these parallels with 1920s and 1930s, I think, have always interested me. I mean, clearly, it's a different context. Yeah, no sure. one's suggesting that you're going to get brown shoots and jackboots and swastikas. However, however... You look at results in Poland recently, the election results. There was a very interesting article in the New York Times the other day about uh, Lugenpresse, and um, German for fake news, which well, was a got, word, word that was used throughout the 1930s. And there are some shadows of it. As here. was one of the people, by the yeah. way. Oh, yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, and I, and I, and I just... But the, the frustration for me is, is that you, you want to have these sorts of conversations about it but the, immediately there is this sort of public backlash that Brexit you know I voted Brexit that doesn't make me a fascist or whatever it is and, and I don't know how you overcome that because I know I'm concerned about the future at the moment looking ahead the next 10 15 years and the one thing that concerned me today was that video extension rebellion guy on top mm. of the uh, tube train now Okay, that was a silly stunt, I think. However, the sort of mob-like reaction to it suggested to me that there was this sort of, under, just under the surface in British society at the moment, there's deep frustration, anger, people aren't happy in work, they don't feel secure, and this, this incident, and suddenly people are putting the boot in on the platform. It's a bunch of, of commuters. Um, this, it just feels like we're entering a dark period at the moment, but I don't want to overstate it. I just wonder what you feel about well, it. Well, I think, I mean, I think the, the historical context is worth looking at for sure. And I, one of the points I made in this speech yesterday is that, you know, as we've lost, you know, through death, people, for example, who literally were able to tell stories about the First World War. And then eventually that's going to happen in the Second World War as well. And that means that these great historical events, they fade from our mind, they fade from our view. We're now in the world of today. And I then think if you look at... You know, you say you don't get work back to the, the you know, the, the, the jackboots and the brown shirts and, and all that sort of stuff. But, frankly, there are too many parallels. That, and the point I made is fascism of the 1930s format it didn't end it didn't start with Nuremberg and gas chambers and six million Jews being killed that's where it ended So before we go into what happens next after Boris Johnson's deal, I think it's actually worth spending a little bit of time on it. The media is describing this deal as a negotiating masterstroke that no one could have done. Alistair, what do you think? I mean, honestly, we, we have something close to the most ridiculous media in the world. Um, for a start... They, they, they just swallow the line, you know. He's got rid of the backstop. Well, he's got rid of that backstop, but it's actually become... The, 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 the elements of the backstop for Northern Ireland are now permanent fixture. So the backstop is now a front stop. And it's, <laughs> it's like... And then if you think about just a few weeks ago, Boris Johnson was at the DUP conference, stood up and said no self-respecting British Prime Minister would ever, could ever agree to putting a border in the Irish Sea. It's part of the deal. 
Now, who has that helped? If a minute, if a minute ago, it was the worst thing that a British Prime Minister could ever do, but the Europeans have been pushing for it. Who's won that negotiation? And that, you know, when I was in Dublin yesterday, the Irish couldn't quite believe what was happening in the way that Johnson sort of caving left, right, and centre. You mean Faradka and his people had a smile on their face? Well, or? I think that the, the, the I didn't see Faradka, but I think I think that the Irish political and business class were thinking, you know, they've been terrified of of no deal for obvious reasons, but they've also been terrified of a hard border on the on the island of Ireland for obvious reasons, and. You know, I think that, that, that they played pretty hardball and, and Johnson's kind of caved. Now, because our media is so ridiculous and because they're sort of so... I think they've spent far too much time looking at the front pages of the Mail, the Express, the Sun, the Star, the Telegraph, which day after day after day say Boris Johnson is you know, winning whatever the, the game is he's playing that day. And they absorb it. And uh, I think that this deal, once it gets to Parliament... And it, listen, it does give you momentum if you can say, we've got a deal, which they have. You know, it is an agreement with both sides. If they can say that, it gives you momentum. But I suspect between now and Saturday, uh, an awful lot of scrutiny that the media are not currently putting into it is going to happen. And once it gets to the House of Commons, I, I wouldn't be at all surprised if it starts to fall apart. I mean, they got rid of the bank stock by getting rid of Northern Ireland, it seems. Effectively, I mean, yeah, they basically shipped it off. It's, I mean, I don't quite see how the Conservatives retain the word unionist in absolutely, their name. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and it's I, Conservative I think, and Brexit party now. Yeah. When does this go out, by the way? Tomorrow. OK. Um, tomorrow, Friday, yeah. No, in fact, funny if I've been talking, I was actually talking, this is just strange how your life goes, but as part of the People's Vote campaign, I've just been with your former leader, Sir John Major, and he was making that very point about, you know, he, he was leader of the Conservative and Unionist Party, and he's worried that the Union is now under real threat in two parts, Ireland, Northern Ireland and Scotland, because the other thing is, you know, Northern Ireland is now getting this kind of arrangement that the Scots are were desperate for and, and happy to have had as part of a kind of compromise negotiation. We're moving to one country, two systems. We're, and there was no well, we mandate could... for that from the referendum. Well, this is the, this is the other reason why I think the, the, the second rev, the People's Vote campaign has to win in the end, is that nobody talked about this. Nobody remotely suggested this was how this was going to end. And if you had said this was how it was going to be end... People wouldn't have voted for it. No, they'd have said this was Project Fear. Fake news. Yeah, exactly. We're just making it up to try and scare people, blah, blah, blah. And then the other thing I think is really important is that you know, a lot of the stuff that the Labour MP, those Labour MPs that are sort of toying with the idea of backing a deal, and again, I understand why they want it off their plates and their constituents are putting them under pressure, but a lot of the things that really worry Labour MPs, they're now moved out of the withdrawal agreement into the political declaration where if Johnson gets his election and if he gets a big majority, he can ignore it and do what the hell he wants. So actually, and listen, let's be honest, why are the ERG backing this rather than when they didn't back Theresa May? Amber Rudd thinks it's sexism, there might be a bit of that, but the real reason is they think, and I suspect it's because Johnson has said to them... Well, they're being told. Right, they're being told, down the track, don't worry, effectively we're going to get no deal. It's exactly what, um, what, what is happening today, you know. Um, we, I understand there are 
whips going around saying to the ERG, you know, vote for this, we'll offer the EU a basic free trade agreement. And if they say no, the transition ends in December Absolutely. 2020, we can no deal then. Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, the simple logic of this seems to me, if there is any deal that can appeal to Steve Baker or any hardline Brexiteer... It shouldn't appeal to Steve Kinnock. It shouldn't appeal to Stephen Kinnock. And if it appeals to both of them, then one of them is going to get bitterly disappointed. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely that, that, right. I think that, Absolutely right. uh, that, 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 that should be the, the, the rule here. But still, how do we move from here, I guess, to getting that confirmatory referendum? Because I think that is where we yeah, are. I, I mean, actually think we are closer to it now than we've ever been. Well, before. I think this is why the ER, it's another reason I think most of the ERG are going to vote for this, is because they can sense that we're getting closer. Um, and I think, you know, I'm not so sure you'll get a vote on it, Sam, on Saturday. Um, I think Saturday is all about and should be all about the deal and it, from our perspective voting that deal down but next week I think you could see a situation developing where you do get a vote for, uh, um, taking place for a confirmatory vote on a deal and I think if that takes place I think you know we might just get there but it's so difficult, all of this, it, because it's all about context. It's all about whether people perceive no deal is a possibility. It's about how tired colleagues have got and how desperate they are to want to move on. So I think it's possible next week, sir. But for those of us who are going to be marching on Saturday after the historic common sitting, I mean, the message here is that a people's vote is still very much on the cards. You know, Johnson's deal what, what is not guaranteed. What, right, what happens if the deal does go through? What, what happens if the Commons does vote for it? Well, I think what, what, at best what will go through on Saturday will be some kind of meaningful vote. You've then got the actual legislation to go through the House of Commons, and I think we would use the I, opportunity, yeah. that as an opportunity to table a, an amendment for a people's vote. If the deal goes through, there'll be a technical extension, I would expect, to pass all the legislation. If the deal goes through, we leave the European Union at the end of the month. And I think then those of us who've been campaigning hard to go back to the people with this are going to have to make a decision about the next step. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, people talk about a rejoin movement or some better name than that. I, you know, I'd, I'd be interested to know what Brussels' view would be of a country that was adhering to all the regulations, asking to rejoin, as opposed to an, uh, a country that's going through the formal accession process, because it would not. Well, I suppose the Iceland situation is comparable, but it, that was fast tracked. But I, or they, in the end, they didn't vote for it. I think the big issue is that Brexit but, is not done yet. I mean, that's the big message. It's just but we will have left the job, the job. The job. I mean, look, you've got you've got two big things happening on Saturday. Is that there's Johnson going to the commons you guys have got to do a real job of picking apart the detail and then you've got this march and obviously the the, the you know and it, it's uh, <laughs> i don't know if you know this but we actually had to move the date of the march uh because of um, an issue with the uh, great ormond street hospital uh, we're having a, a, cha a charitable event and, um, and, we, and we, in the end we thought, well, there's, there's, there's not, you know, we, we're quite good at sort of, you know, bulldozing our way through. So we, we thought we're not taking on the Great Orbit Street. No, no, that, I think that was a wise move. <laughs> and that is why the march is on um, this Saturday. Otherwise it already had been. Um, and so I think that the timing is perfect in many ways. But I think what today does, it gives Johnson a momentum 
which will only be stopped by forensic examination of the detail, and that is... Which is precisely what he's trying to stop. Absolutely. Because what, is, what has happened so far with every Brexit option is that from afar, it's looked okay, and then when people have actually examined the detail, they've recoiled. And so I no, think Johnson is... But this is how populism... Sorry to go back to my theme about populism. This is how populism works. It isn't about... It's, it's not really about doing things to be popular. It's about uh, shaping uh, a truth that doesn't necessarily have to be true. And that's what Trump does. I think it's what Johnson does. And if you do get that sense of... If you get a combination of people saying, uh, oh, hooray, he's done a deal, plus, uh, oh, for God's sake, let's just get this thing done. And funnily enough, just before I came... To, just before I met you, I was just uh, having a... Uh, popped into a, a cafe just around the corner and had a cup of tea and a couple of guys came and sat down and one of them was saying, you know, keep going, keep going, keep going. But the other one was saying, oh, Christ, can't we just get it done? You know, so and I think that, that sense of just get it done, that's why that messaging from the Conservatives and the 100 million quid spaffed up against the wall on, you know, we're leaving, come what may, that's what that's been about, has been about sort of just grinding people down. And that this, the, the only way to stop that is absolute forensic examination of the detail. Well, on that, I mean, I, I um, a friend of mine, lawyer, had a look at the the withdrawal, the draft withdrawal, because it's not a full legal text. Which, by the way, is 60-something pages. Theresa yeah. Mays was 585 yeah. pages. Yeah, it's because it's not the full text. And, 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 and his reaction to it, he sort of described as a quick and dirty one, was that it almost read like it was sort of undoing partition by stealth that Article 12 in particular, the responsibility that is on the Britain to treat Northern Ireland as part of the European Union, and that, in, and that in Article 16, there's absolutely no guarantee that a hard border would not be imposed. And that was just an immediate overview of, of that he did of, of it. I, I tend to agree with you, Alistair. I think this, when, when you actually go through it and you read it and you understand it, the implications of this are really quite stark. And it's no surprise to me the DUP have taken the position they've taken. How, I mean, the DUP, the raison d'etre is to be part of the home union. Well, if that legal analysis that a friend of mine said is accurate, which I would presume it was, how on earth could they vote for it? How can any unionist in the House vote for this? And indeed, how, how could any British patriot vote for this because this is going to undermine the United Kingdom. So what is your view then on Conservative soft Brexiteers? I mean, the whipless Tories. Will they be voting for this? You know, those who had the whip withdrawn. I was one of them, but obviously I moved to the Liberal Democrats. You know, I think we know where Dominic Grieve stands on these things. Well, I think there are the, the, the sort of the sole three, the three Justine, Dominic and Gitto are not going to vote for it. As, as, as regards the other 18... I don't think all of them will vote for it, but there is a possibility that they will do. And I, and I would just say to them, you know, are you unionists or not? Because quite clearly this document undermines the relationship between Northern Ireland and the rest of the United Kingdom. That's what it does. That's why the well, DUP are voting Sam, against the point it. you made about, you know, any, anybody who... Anything that Steve Baker is so happy about should give cause for thought, pause for thought for Labour MPs. I think the same applies to Philip Hammond and David Gork and these guys. Absolutely. Because this is a completely different vision of what they want for the economy and our future relationship. So I would hope they... they and I, I understand the pressures they're all under to get it off our plates, talk about something else. But the real... You know, the many big lies in this whole thing... 
One of the biggest is this idea that it, somehow Brexit is going to be delivered and done by October the 31st if we do this. I mean, we're going to be living this now with this for years and years and decades to come. Yeah, we're not going to be talking about school playing fields on November the 1st. For a very if, long if this time. Gets through. Very Alistair, long time. one area that I think you'll be particularly helpful with is Scotland. And I think remain, the Remain side has said quite blithely that you know, Brexit undermines um, the Union, we've seen it with Northern Ireland, but also could precipitate Scottish independence. And it'd be really good to get kind of your sense of how that could happen, given the deal that Johnson has put on the table. Well, I think partly it's about Johnson himself and his character. Um, but it's, it's really interesting, this question. I, I'm, I was born and raised in England. I've lived most of my life in England, but I consider myself to be British first and then Scottish because my background and my parents and, and so forth. And I worked very, very hard in, uh, in the, the Scottish referendum. I worked very, very hard for the, uh, the No campaign. Um, and I've got to be honest, I, would I be quite in the same place second time around I'm not so sure now I know that if any of my um, every time I, every time I tweet something nice about Nicola Sturgeon or Ian Blackford I get these messages from Douglas Alexander and people like that and say you know what is going on but I think you've got to do speak- the cyber nuts cheer you on they do a bit, although Nicola got absolutely dis- she when she came to the People's Vote campaign and she did a she and I were pictured together and she got absolutely blasted for that. But you've got to speak as you find. I do think that if you're if you're a Scottish and you're a nationalist, and okay, I'm against nationalism, right? But if they can see a way of escaping, and I agree with you, I think I think your former party is now effectively an English nationalist party. That is what it is. And if that is going to just you know, if you were a Scot watching recent days where Arlene Foster, who can't even get her own bloody institutions up and running, she's trotting in and out of number 10, calling the shots. The ERG are trotting in and out of number 10, calling the shots. Scottish and the Welsh, who are the governments of those countries, not even getting any sort of sense of what's going on. <coughs> I, I didn't see Stephen Kinnock being called in either. No, absolutely. Because, you know, they, they're, so, so I think that... I can see why the, the, the argument might move. Now, what I think is that sense of this is about England, this is about the English Tory party, this is about English nationalism, and I do think this particular deal, the fact of carving out Northern Ireland into a, an arrangement actually which might suit Northern Ireland incredibly well, economically, that the Scots think, hold on a minute, so then they start to think, well, look, you know, we've got quite a good brand, people in Europe like us, and they start to think maybe we can get in as an independent Scotland. I can see that happening. I, I, think, I think you're absolutely right. And I, I think um, given the economic damage that could be done by a hard deal, a hard Brexit, which is what uh, Johnson is going for, Scots will then say the English Tories did this to us. And that would feed the essence that they need to be independent. I mean, because uh, yeah. the English Tories did it to them don't care about them and so they should make their own way yeah so whereas you expect them always to be asking for a second independence referendum the damage that hard brexit could do could actually make it more likely to be successful if they were to get one absolutely and not exactly
Alistair, I mean, how many years were you in Downing Street? Uh, Full-time, 97 to 2003, and then part-time after that until Gordon went. And, And looking, you know, on the basis of that experience and looking at this current number 10... What do you see? I mean, how do you feel about it and the type of the people involved, the way they've, particularly over the summer when they're all this prorogation business and everything else, is it, do you think that the way that they're going about government is different to the way? Oh, yeah, I do. And in what way? Um, I think it's, it's look, I don't, I'm not in there, so I don't know, but I obviously know quite a lot of civil servants and see them, and I, you get a sense of it being very chaotic. Um... I think that there are there are things that have been done that I just frankly don't think we'd have got away with even if we'd tried. Um, I mean, it's so it's a bit like Trump's White House. This that there's so much stuff happens that you kind of forget. I mean, can you imagine <laughs> if for, for all the sort of grief I used to get for all the stuff I did or didn't do, if I'd have grabbed a woman? Uh, special advisor from the Treasury and then got a copper to come in and marched her out because I'd, I had fired her summarily. I how, think, how would Gordon have reacted to that? Well, I think he might have checked a mobile phone, but... Uh, <laughs> but it's... But it, so, I, and that's, that's, you know, rel- obviously serious for the woman, relatively trivial in terms of the bigger scheme of things. But, you know, the prorogation thing... You could see when... I, and, and even the Queen's speech, to be honest, I watched it... And I couldn't help thinking, there's the Queen sitting on the throne, reading out a set of bills which have got no more chance of being enacted by this Parliament than of that glass of water turning into wine as we sit here. Right? It's not going to happen. But you did try it on with your Queen in your time, though. I don't My know. government will get rid of fox hunting? Well, we did. That was a bill. That was a bill that was happening. No question of trying. The only time I do say, I mean, this is where you, you see, if you've done your research properly, you could have got me on oh. You could have got me on a couple of points. On, I did say in my diaries that when she, when, in one of the Queen's speeches, when she used the phrase, for the many, not the few. Oh, did you get her to do I that? I think it was a health okay. service for the many, not the few, something like that. But, you know, we were always very, very sensitive about that stuff. Uh, not least because we knew that the right wing, when we saw this in the, in the, the aftermath of Princess Diana's death, the right wing were always desperate to either to portray us as kind of Republicans or to say that we were trying to kind of somehow use the monarchy in a, in a political context. But the truth is, Johnson has. On two occasions now, he has. Well, they've, lied to, they've lied to the monarch. I mean, that's Absolutely. what they've said in Scottish Absolutely. court. So, um, and, well, Rhys Mogg in particular, yeah. you know, for yeah. all his brand of decorum absolutely he was the one sent to do it but specifically on personalities i mean mr cummings gets a lot of the coverage i don't know whether it's we can compare his role to your role i think your role was different but do you think he's you know uh, trying to copy you in any way i mean do you do you get a sense that his manner and his sort of ruthless way in which he deals with the special advisors is is he either copying you or has he been watching too much of the thick of it no, I think it's. I, I think there is an element of that, but I. I think it's. <laughs> look, I've had a few actors play me, but I've never had a Hollywood A-lister, right? Yeah. Uh, I think the most. <laughs> Why do you think that is? <laughs> no, because the, the A-listers were playing Tony Blair and Bill Clinton and the Queen and these other people, but I have had some decent actors, but Cummings has had Benedict Cumberbatch, and I honestly think he's gone to his head. I don't think he's Dominic Cummings anymore. I think he thinks he's in a film. 
I mean, that sort of... He's that, writing the sequel of... Well, it's also uh, that, uh, studied, that studied look of kind of chic scruffiness, right? I think he spends half an hour in the morning in front of the mirror <laughs> deciding how dirty the body warmer should be because he's looked out the window and he's seen a couple of cameras there. And this is now, where I'm going wrong, sir. Well, I tell you, but you, you, need a, you need a took back as well. Oh, yeah, and it's, yeah. people, people do say to me, they say, oh, well, you know, you were the story and that's why you went and blah, blah, blah. But I had been there almost a decade, you know, by the time yeah. I sort of felt, yeah. you know what, I think maybe I I'm taking a month. too much of the heat here and it's time to go. And I also think it's bad for Johnson. I, th- I think that just as with um, Steve Bannon... Uh, I think it became, you know, I don't know if this is true, but I think it was Farage who told me this, that Trump was walking through the, the West Wing and he, somebody had left a copy of Time magazine lying there and there was Steve Bannon on the front. And, you know, Trump, who we know, is a complete narcissist and thought, well, what's that about? And, you know, <laughs> days later he was gone. He got his P45 or the American yeah, equivalent. And, and, yeah. and, I, and I, th- I actually think that, that Johnson... I think this does undermine Johnson, that people think... This is not actually him. He's being kind of, you know, manipulated and so forth. I don't know what the truth is because I, I barely know Dominic Cummings. I mean, I met him, you know, once or twice and that's it. I knew him a little bit when he was with Duncan Smith and when Duncan Smith was Tory leader, I think. But, I don't, you know, but, but I, my sense is that the operation, we got all this, sla- this flack for the alleged politicisation of the civil service. You know, we didn't. We just didn't. And, I, and our relations with the civil service actually were very, very good. Um, one of the things I'm proud of, you talk about the way you treat special advisors, you won't get many people that work for me who slag me off uh, because I was always very... Con- I mean, it's part of my session of sport. If you build a team, you've got to have mutual respect within that team. You've got to know that everybody knows what their role is and you've got to respect them. And I don't get the feeling that Cummings and Johnson respect anybody other than the people who are in the room at that time, provided they do what it is they're telling them to do. Well, there's clearly an arrogance, uh, yeah. an arrogance um, about them. And I think probably a difference um, with um, your time in Downing Street, and I was PPS David Cameron, so I've been in Downing Street, sort of part partisan, participant, part observer, is now you've got a campaign rather than a government. Yeah. There is no project that defines... Johnson's time in Downing Street other than getting us out of the EU? I guess, I mean, I'm not going to defend the guy, but you can see why that is the project. Um, but what that you don't have any sense of out with that is a sense of a bigger vision for the country. And I said I was with John Major earlier today. I, I think that, you know, if you go back to all the prime ministers of our, of our lifetime you've always had a sense of what they're trying to do for the country. I mean, is Johnson the liberal progressive who was mayor of London, or is he the Steve Baker, um, you know, hard right, Singapore on Thames guy? And the worrying thing for me... It depends on the day of the week, I think. Well, I think it depends on how he wakes up and who he's with. And, I, you know, this back to this speech I made in Dublin, I made the point that Hitler, the, the, the danger of Hitler was the fact that he had such strong views... I think the danger of Johnson and Trump, in a way, in this populist era, is that they don't have very strong views, and therefore they can get manipulated into all sorts of positions, uh, driven there by these, in the main, forces of the right. I think one thing that Johnson has a very clear view on, though, is that he wants to remain Prime Minister. So, ultimately, he will do whatever he needs to do... Absolutely. ...to carry and, and on listen, being Prime Minister. Listen, why is he? why is he been, since the day... 
your former party members elected him as their leader and therefore sadly he became Prime Minister. Why has his single obsession been getting a general election? Because if we do manage to get a people's vote, I think he's going to lose it. Whereas he can get a general election, 35%, he gets a decent majority and he can do what the hell he wants. That's why he's obsessed with the election. You think he'll lose a people's vote? I certainly do. I really do, yeah, I do. And I think, I'm not saying it would be easy, I'm not saying it would be nice, I don't, I'm not saying that the country is yearning for it, but, but I think it's the only way we can begin to resolve this and begin to reunite the country. And, look, it's true, you meet people who say, I'll never vote again, I'm really angry, you've got Farage today, 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 if there was one, he wouldn't participate it. How can it ever be undemocratic to say, we're going to give you the people the final say? And how can it be undemocratic when the Brexit that was promised is just gone? It's vanished. Yeah. No, it never, it never and, actually and the, existed. It never existed. And the Brexit that they've now got, if this had been the Brexit, let's just be honest, if this is the Brexit that Johnson had campaigned on in 2016, it had been laughed out of court. And here's the other thing. If, let's say that our side had won, let's say Remain had won, do you seriously think that... If we'd have then said, ah, right, so we've won that referendum, and as we go into the reform process following the referendum, we talked about reform, and do you know what we're going to do? We're going to join the single currency, and we're going to get into Schengen. Do you think they would have said, oh, well, that's OK, because you had the referendum and you won, and therefore that's what we voted for? That, that is such hell? a good point. It's a good point. That is hell? a really good point. Now, allow me to be provocative. Go Some on, people say that Brexit happened because trust in politicians had collapsed... Now, if you were going to go back, you go to expenses. You might go back to dodgy Iraqi dossier and everything else. Yeah, do you think there's any merit in that argument that this was that Brexit came from a, a sort of a collapse in trust in politicians and politics over a long period of time, um, and that however much you and others who were out and it, during the Remain campaign try to tell everyone it was going to be like it has turned out to be, you just weren't believed because of the legacy of of previous incidents. I think there's an element of that, but I do think it's overstated. I mean, the the, the whole... Um, funny enough, I'm sorry to keep banging on about this speech in Dublin, but in the Q&A afterwards, one of the students asked that question. And the point I made was that the... You know, don't forget, we won a general election with a pretty healthy majority after the Iraq war. And, yes, expenses was bad, and, yes, trust is an issue... But I don't. I don't think we should overstate it. I think the. I think the. The, for me, the biggest driver of the Brexit result was the consequence of the crash. I think it was the feeling that the crash happened. The people who caused it got away with it, and quotes ordinary people close quotes paid a price. And I think they were really pissed off. And then I think the second layer maybe is this sense of politicians don't really get me. They don't really understand me. And so, for example, if I think about Cameron. Um, now I think Cameron was way... I'd Any day of the week, rather have Cameron than Boris Johnson. Any day of the week. However, I think that when he and Osborne were campaigning in the referendum, constantly saying, unless you vote Remain, this great economy that we built is going to, you know, vanish... Millions of people saying, what the fuck are you talking about? This economy, the, I, I don't live in it. Where is it? And I think that was the consequence of them. They, they feel, because again, this, just as Johnson is constantly playing the political campaign, so did they actually. 
And, you know, Ed Miliband, if he listens to your podcast, I know he loves his own, but if he listens to yours, he, he and I always argue. Every time I see him, it's become a joke now, because whenever I see Ed, I say, look, you know, the worst thing you did is you just didn't challenge the narrative enough about, you know, we had to make the cuts because of the, because of the, the mess we created, mess we inherited, as opposed to this was the crash, these were the causes, and here's how we're going to fix it. Well, it was interesting earlier, I was having a chat with a senior Labour MP, and she was very much of the opinion that the referendum say it goes remain that that wasn't the end of it we actually had to address oh, go on sure. and this was going to be 10 years well i try as, trying as, to, I, as you know we haven't talked about immigration there i mean before we go on to that let me just make this point though i, I had this this you know, I, I tried. I sort of thought I was going to get traction for a while. A couple of years ago, when we first started, you know, really motoring on the People's Vote campaign, I, I tried to get the Labour Party to to go for this slogan: "Tough on tough on tough on Brexit, tough on the causes of Brexit." In other words, tough on Brexit. Let's not do it, but tough on the causes of Brexit. Let's actually address all of those things. But you know, because I'm a sort of filthy Blairite, they didn't really want to didn't want to know. But, but immigration, we've, we've talked about Brexit. I, I think I agree with your analysis about the crash and the consequences of the crash. And to be honest, if you, there is an argument to say if Cameron is going to have a referendum, he should have probably looked at how he went about austerity differently, yeah. um, if that's where he wanted to end up. But immigration has kind of been part of it. And it's one of those things that since the referendum we haven't really talked about, but it was clearly there in driving for out sure. some people voted for sure and some people would say that some of the roots of that are in free movement and certainly how we dealt with the yeah. enlargement at the time yeah for sure and look if you go back this is why politics is so often about unintended consequences if you go back to the time that the countries of the former communist Block were coming into the European Union. So Poland, yeah, yeah. And, and and Hungary, and you know, 2004, yeah. Yeah. So they they were they were all coming in, and at that time, um, because we were in a kind of relatively pretty good period, and well, okay, this is all part of you know the end of the end of the Soviet bloc and the collapse of the Berlin Wall, and this is all this is all good. Added to which, the businesses here because the economy was doing pretty well businesses were constantly saying and the public services were saying we need more we need more skilled and unskilled labor that was certainly the case in healthcare yeah and so they so were coming from from these countries now so, so that is why, we, but we didn't apply the transition period no we didn't we and that was a choice a that was a choice exactly transition period. those but, but, but bear in mind yes the other countries haven't had the equivalent of brexit even those countries that did apply that have still had issues of immigration because I think, I think part of what this is about, it goes back to the point about the crash, is this feeling that look, I, I, Tony Blair and I, you know, I always agree with most of what Tony said. I did sometimes feel that he, he was too keen to promote the upside of globalisation and that the downside, we, we should have, I think, been much more clear about educating and explaining and accepting that there was a downside as well. I think we try to portray it as a very sunny... Just to develop that point, why do you think... I mean, I I really didn't want to have a referendum um, because my patients in Slough and indeed my constituents in, um, 
in Bracknell, there was a, I, I just convinced the country was going to vote Leave because particularly my patient group in Slough, this was a diverse community. You would think lots of headquarters of business. How could they be voting Leave? And it was because I got a real sense, under, you know, under the because being a GP, you get under the under the surface yeah, yeah. that people felt insecure. They felt like that uh, something else was happening in the world that they weren't part of. You pick these things up. I mean, yeah, I'd go up, come up here to Westminster, and there was an arrogance, a belief. Well, of course, everyone's going to vote to remain. And I was really, really worried that they were going to use it as a I'm against the status oh, quo sure. vote. And I couldn't understand how people who were in politics, they all had constituents, some of them had been in politics for a long time, some of them professed to be really clever politicos who understood Britain mm. and how to win elections, could get that so wrong. I mean, how did that happen? I don't... Well, well I, I mean, I just want to go back to Alistair's point about globalisation before that, just make an observation, which I agree with you. And I, will remem- I remember when David Cameron had this slogan, we are in a global race, Britain's in a global race and we've got to win. And one MP in a marginal seat came over to him and said, can you stop using that language, please? And he said, why? And said, because global race sounds like electrified Zimmer frames. It makes my constituents really nervous. And it goes back to your point, Alistair, about the upsides of globalisation, but the downsides Mm. as people perceive them or were experiencing them were never properly dealt with by the political class. You see, I I think that in the main... I think if you're in politics and if you're in the media, and let's be honest, there's this whole kind of world here. The, when we talk about the bubble, we basically mean media and politics and people who live in it. We tend to really like change. We like pace. We like stuff that happens. We like excitement. We like adrenaline and all that. A lot of people find change really difficult, really challenging. And I think that the globalisation thing, you talked about whether Cummings and those guys have sort of, you know, taken a lot from what we did. I think David Cameron definitely took a lot from Tony in terms of style and messaging and rhetoric and that kind of thing. And part of the shtick, if you like, was, as you say, you know, this is this is like a really amazing time to be alive, and it's and we're in a race against these other countries, and and I think a lot of people felt found it very, just not scary, but kind of unsettling. And the other thing to say is that your your point, Philip, about how did they get it so wrong? The polls were saying a certain thing. The media was basically giving a message. One of the reasons, by the way, Sam, I think we would win a referendum. Yes, it's true. Lots of people voted for the first time, right? People who, people who voted didn't normally vote in elections who voted leave. I think a lot of people didn't vote who are basically want to stay. But they were absorbing this noise the whole time. Remain's going to walk it. You know, from both camps were saying that. So I think, we've, I think they got it wrong for all sorts of reasons, which next time around I just think will be much more, both as the campaigns and the public will be so much better informed. It's the end of the podcast and yet another busy week in Westminster. Ordinarily at this age, we ask everyone what they're looking forward to at the weekend. It seems like a pointless question this time, but it's still worth asking anyway. 
for Philip and me, it looks like we're spending all of Saturday in the House of Commons. What are you expecting, Philip? I'm expecting the deal to be presented. There may be a couple of votes in addition to that, I think, amendments and the like. I don't think the deal will pass as things currently stand on Thursday evening, sat in this pub. And then once that's all done, I might pop across and see if I can bump into Alistair at the People's Vote um, stage in Parliament Square. Yeah, we're not going to be watching the rugby on Saturday morning, are we? Well, I'm actually, is it kickoff is a bit earlier, isn't it? I'm is hoping it? I might see some of it. Alistair, you are lucky to be out of frontline politics. How are you spending the weekend? Burnley well, versus Leicester? I would normally be going to Leicester to see Burnley, but I am actually, I've been helping put together the People's Vote uh, march and rally. I've also, bizarrely, I'm, I'm spending, bef- when you're actually doing the first hour in your parliament, I'm going to be with the Archbishop of Canterbury at a conference on mental health. He and I are in discussion about mental health. And I was sort of hoping that he might send me a message saying, look, I'm assuming you're really busy with the people's vote and, you know, don't worry about not coming. But instead I got a message saying, really looking forward to seeing you Saturday morning. So I feel I have to go. You, you, you've got the calling. As, as no, it, as I it. haven't <laughs> got the calling, but I will be going. <laughs> very, very good. I think what I can say is if there's anyone who, listening to this podcast, who cares about remaining the future of our country, You've got to be there on the march this Saturday. I think so. In mixed I think so. And also the the, um, the reason I was uh, seeing John Major is I've, I've spent a bit of time with him this week and a bit of time with Tony Blair. And one of the things you're going to be showing is a sort of just a thing reminding people about the the whole kind of story of Northern Ireland and why it matters so much. I'm loving your loving with John Major. It's a bit odd, isn't it? It it's wasn't. It wasn't odd. like that circa 1996. It was like that. No. No. And that's the end of this week's edition of On the House. Who knows what state Britain will be in this time next week. We'll be trying to explain it, so make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favourite podcast app. In the meantime, thanks to Alistair Campbell. Good to talk to you. Thank you. It's goodbye from me, Philip Lee. And from me, Sam Jima. We'll see you next time. On the House was presented by Dr. Philip Lee, MP, and Sam Jima, MP. Audio production was by me, Alex Reese, and the producer is Andrew Harrison. On the House is a Podmasters production.